at Wisdom 2.0, the founder of Daybreaker, had a really striking statistic that in the US and the UK, we touch each other uh, on average two times per conversation mm. when we meet and when we depart. Mm. In Mexico, it's 153 times per conversation. Hi, my name is Stuart Alsop, and this is my podcast, Crazy Wisdom, where we talk about how mindfulness, meditation, and yoga can help us to become more creative in the face of rapid technological change and societal upheaval. Today I interviewed Andrew Murray Dunn, the CEO of Cienpo, a software layer for your phone that makes your relationship with it more intentional and less distracting. It's a technology that aims to empower rather than distract. I learned a lot from interviewing Andrew, particularly about how these ancient practices of meditation can help us to stay present in a constantly shifting environment. As the pace of change becomes more rapid, it seems that mindfulness is one of the most potent resources we have left to retain our humanity. I really hope you enjoy this interview and please subscribe on iTunes. Hey there, I'm Andrew Murray Dunn. And I'm thrilled to be here with you, Steve. Yeah, and let's get right to it. What, uh, what originally brought you to mindfulness or meditation? I think I innately was drawn to mindfulness. I remember times in my childhood where I would pause and try to be present, to stay in this moment. And it can never last more than a few seconds, but I recall doing that on a pretty regular basis. And I also, I also recall wandering off many times on family vacations, um, you know, from friend groups, just to kind of be by myself. So I was often drawn to solitude and things like sunsets. Some of my friends know me as the sunset chaser. That's always just been a great way to, and I often do it alone, but sometimes with friends, a great way to be in nature, you know, watch the subtle changes of something happening and be in that awe place. But it wasn't until college, uh, a partner of mine, her family was into Tibetan Buddhism. So I got some bits and pieces of that through her. And I remember the first time meditating with her father, it was like, oh my God, this is incredible. <laughs> and he gave me a book and she and I would meditate once in a while, but outside of that container, I really had a little exposure to explore that. I had no community, no, no mentorship or resources. There was one really strange instance where I was at her family's house. I had been drinking a lot the night before and I woke up kind of still tipsy in this weird hungover state and we got in a big fight. I went home to my house and something happened where it kicked off a week of what I would describe as real flow in everything I was doing. I was just hyper present, bringing my full self, kicking ass, showing up, you know, all these crazy ideas. And, and then it stopped abruptly. And I spent a few months trying to get back to it. I didn't really know what to make of it. And it wasn't until a few weeks ago at a founder meditation that Will Kabat-Zinn described a similar experience to explain how meditation can make you more accident prone. You might not, you know, you could meditate for thousands of hours and nothing might happen, but you're more likely to tap into a frequency or something. And I was like, wow, that, you know, I'm not really sure what happened at that house that day, you know, there were lots of prayer flags around and it was definitely a higher vibration environment. But anyways, fast forward a couple of years and then I, I had the privilege of working with a friend in India on a business 
I, I took that opportunity out of purely wanting to see the world, no spiritual uh, desires. Then, of course, living in India, things happen. <laughs> uh, and it was really a week of solo travel where I, I found myself sitting with Hare Krishnas and going to all these far-flung, esoteric, physical and mental places. Mm. And, and I think my, my interest in meditation really leveled up from there because I just I knew that there was more going on than what's going on, and I wanted to explore that deeper. Wow. So that was four years ago. and I mean, it's, it's crazy how it takes a journey like that to really adopt a practice, because it wasn't until two or three years after that that I'm doing it regularly. Uh-huh. Like and then, daily practice. Correct, uh-huh. yeah. Uh-huh. And, and my daily practice is nothing to write home about. Uh-huh. And that's after now doing a couple of retreats and you know incorporating it into like a weekly circle. Uh-huh. So... Long journey, long ways to go. <laughs> what is your daily practice? Usually 10 to 20 minutes in the morning on Insight Timer. Uh-huh. And is it guided or do you guide yourself? I guide myself. Okay. Uh-huh. I, I've created a morning routine where I live a few blocks from Lafayette Park. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's this feeling of ascending into a Garden of Eden type place where mm-hmm. there's fields of lavender and a view of the bay hummingbirds, green tropical parrots from Ecuador. Mm. It's, it's just a, this really exotic environment. It smells good, and so that's a really great place for me to mm. sit, sometimes listening to the nature sounds, mm. sometimes doing breath exercises, my qigong. Uh-huh. Uh, so you wake up in the morning and go to the, the park, or is it more in the day? During the day? In the morning. In the morning, okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. I didn't do it today because it's kind of foggy, yeah. but I try <laughs> to do it as much as I can. Uh-huh. Yeah. Huh. That's interesting. And in India, what? Uh, where did you go in India? I was living in Punjab. Okay. I got to explore a lot of the country. Which city in Punjab? Jalandhar. Jalandhar. All right. Uh, I lived in Chandigarh, India. Oh, no way. Yeah. And that's, awesome. That's actually where my yoga practice, my daily yoga practice started. I was, uh, I, I lived, I lived in Chandigarh and I was working at a, or I was uh, starting my own company and we had moved out there basically to, um, uh, because a development company had offered us uh, a bunch of developers to work on our project as mm-hmm. long as we came there um, uh, and like work directly with developers as opposed to doing it remotely. Uh, awesome. So yeah, I lived in Chandigarh for nine months and it was so cheap to get a yoga instructor. <laughs> I had a yoga instructor come to the house every day wow. uh, and lead us in yoga. Wow, that's um, wonderful. Yeah, so that was the first time I did daily yoga practice. Uh, um, and that's something I've thought a lot about recently and, and for the last couple of years is the difference between having a guided a guided practice mm-hmm. and a self-guided practice. Um, what are your thoughts on, on the difference between the two? Mm. I incorporate both. So I'm, I'm part of this program called Luminous Awareness Institute, and we have a teacher that provides guided practices for us. And so I try to combine that with my own practice, which kind of just depends on what I'm feeling that day. Mm. Maybe I want to replicate some of those guided practices. Maybe I want to do something more just simple breath. Maybe I want to do more of a body scan or listening to nature sounds. Mm. Um, I think guided is a really great way to learn, mm. and I always appreciate guidance. Uh-huh. I like to balance it. Yeah, yeah. I've noticed for me, uh, it's really important to get a self-guided practice going because then you can do it anywhere. You don't need to depend on anyone. Right. Uh, but then for guided practice, especially for yoga practice, I'm I'm working with a teacher called Harvey Deutsch over at Yoga Tree, and he does therapeutic yoga, and his knowledge of anatomy and the way the body works is so mm. strong that each time I go in there I learn incredible amounts about my own body and stuff like that and so I find that I'm working when I'm working with somebody else or a teacher 
especially somebody much older who has a lot, a lot of experience who's been doing this for 30 or 40 years, uh, just I, I level up much quicker. Oh, basically. yeah. Um, yeah, that mentorship can be super powerful. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. But then there's something to be said that, that in our own experience, I think if we have the right attitude or framework, we can tap into knowledge that is not immediately available. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, and know it for yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really important. I'm very, I guess, heady, you would say. Uh-huh. So I like having the intellectual explanations, mm-hmm. but I also thoroughly believe, or increasingly believe, in that you know, knowing is in the body, uh-huh. and you really need to feel it to know it. Uh-huh. And so sometimes learning myself is, is the best way. Uh-huh. Um, it brings up something that I've thought a lot about recently. Uh, with uh, Descartes, Descartes basically in the 1700s came up with this idea that you think, therefore you are, and mm-hmm. I think, therefore I am. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? Do you think thought is an important element of existence or being, or what is the role of thought in your in your practice? Mm. In my yoga practice, mindfulness practice, meditation, mindfulness. What is your relationship to thought? What how what does thought do? Yeah, it's funny. That was one of the big questions I would ask. On meditation retreats the first couple times hey is it okay to take notes during meditation because uh-huh. this is when a lot of the, the good ideas would flow um, and the the general response was if it's important enough you'll remember it uh-huh. <laughs> and um, you know thoughts that you know they're not good or bad like it's good to notice them um, and depending on the type of practice you know you're, you might be observing them you might be trying to have no thoughts uh-huh. I don't really have an ideological stance on on that at the moment uh-huh. people seem to be onto the idea of like get out of your mind and get into your body mm. but i think there's a lot of valuable things that come from your headspace uh-huh. as well uh-huh. um and that's the intro yeah because the, the, the thing that i've heard the, that most helped me in this dilemma is that they're both connected mind and body are, are connected and body is the most physical gross uh, form of mind and mm-hmm. mind is the most subtle form of body um so there, it's the range basically. Um, but I think in our in our society, we're taught that we exist up here. That mm. This is that the in the head that the head is where 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 existence is. But there are other centers of the body that are mm-hmm. that are important to our existence and everything like that. And then you get into this this idea of, of physical membrane that su- separates me from the rest of the world. But that membrane doesn't separate me from the food that I eat, and the food then becomes me. Um, and then the the you know the air that I breathe mm-hmm. becomes me as well. Do you have a yoga practice or do you practice yoga? A little bit. Uh-huh. I'd say I take a class once or twice a week and then I have a power yoga in my room 10 minutes a morning. Uh-huh. I try to create this morning routine where uh-huh. I don't use my phone for uh-huh. the first 45 minutes, hour of the day, uh-huh. and prioritize self-care, hmm. journaling, meditation, things like that. Uh-huh. And so you've, you've, had a, a, you've written about your struggle with technology. Uh, can you go a little bit more into that and like your history of that? Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. So I got my phone and computer in my room at age 12. Wow. And I I had switched schools. I had friends, but I lived in like rural suburbs, so it wasn't super easy to get around. So, And I, I was in sibling rivalry at the time. Mm. So this was a great escape, you know. I could just hop on my computer. And for me, it wasn't video games. It was more of the messaging. And uh, I think I was the first person on Facebook in ninth, 10th grade, oh. Reddit. So... I think I started to rely on these um, digital interactions more than the 
human connection, mm. um, even though I had humans, you know, right across the room and downstairs. Mm. <laughs> and I, 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 I took that to the next level and I got a smartphone the day before college. I was obviously interacting with lots of people too, but, you know, now I had so much free time. And so in class, I was, you know, texting people about social life and dating life and, uh, you know, hanging or keeping in touch with friends back at home. And I just created this always on, always connected uh, existence. And I thought it was great at the time. You know, people talked, I was in an undergrad business school, so people talked about how your network is your net worth. Mm. And I really enjoyed meeting lots of different type of people and connecting the dots between them and getting people together. I was social chair of my fraternity, so I would throw parties. I would also host things back at home. I was always sort of this organizer person. And it wasn't until that year after college when I went to India that I had my first experience without Wi-Fi for really the first time in a decade. It was like everything just came to a pause. (laughs) And I, I felt free and clear and creative and present and for that week, I was really high on life. I was like, wow, this is direct experience with the world. This is, this is life. This is why we're here. Mm. What the hell is like this thing doing to me in my hand? <laughs> and that sort of prompted a almost five year now questioning and experimenting with this idea of my relationship with technology, uh-huh. because I saw that it was getting in the way of lots of areas of my life. And that when I was away from it, things were better, but I also needed to engage with it for career and, you know, other things. Mm. So how, how that wound up manifesting after a couple of years of experimenting with different things, you know, I would, I would go for a jog and leave my phone at home. You know, I was just trying to create these little moments of the day where I didn't have my stuff on me. Uh, at the same time, I had developed this pretty religious practice of taking notes on my phone. It sort of became this mental model. For life I, I was interested in seeing the world and trying lots of things and meeting lots of people so anytime something interesting was recommended or I had an insight or I observed something I would, I would jot it down because if I got it down I would inevitably revisit it and it would manifest in some form maybe not in the near term but maybe it would connect with some other idea and that would move me through life personally and professionally and I kind of saw this as not a secret weapon, but just my, my method of, you know, figuring out this world. Oh. And I, I started that habit of going for jogs and hikes and stuff without my phone. But then I, I had this conundrum where, okay, now I was clear, present, creative. I was having all these ideas, mm-hmm. but I had no way to get them down. And I didn't really like the notebook thing. Mm-hmm. And so I, <laughs> I, I came up with this like silly hacked, I, I hollowed out a chapstick bottle rolled up a piece of paper and put a golf pen inside. So it was like this little secret mini notebook. And then I was like, what am I doing? Like we're in Silicon Valley. Like, I can I hack something together probably. Uh-huh. So I, uh, I started working on a transcription ring, which was a wearable ring that you could record voice notes to. And then when it was back in range of your phone, you, uh, it would transfer by Bluetooth energy and transcribe it in your notes app mm-hmm. as if you'd had your phone with you. And mm-hmm. so, I wanted this to be something you could take in the shower, uh, mm-hmm. to festivals, on hikes, and be this conduit back to the digital world where you could mm-hmm. disconnect more safely. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of solving this you know, super personal pain point for me, mm-hmm. but in pitching it to a lot of people and doing some customer discovery, it was creatives who were drawn to it the most. Wow. And that, that made a ton of sense. Wow. Like people who 
appreciate and recognize that space from technology allows them to be creative. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was it was only three months that I worked on that. Like I made an Arduino prototype and I was working with some other people. But I was pitching it at a meetup, a hardware meetup, and I met these other guys who were pitching a mindful phone. And it was like, oh my God, we're like thinking about similar things and I haven't met anyone else who has. And so we started talking, started working together, and that's how I got involved with Siempo. Wow. And what is Siempo? Siempo is a phone for humans. Uh -huh. So it's it's pretty straightforward. Yeah. We are solving the root cause of the problem, which is that these interfaces, they're they're not designed for dependency, but they have no protections against the apps that are. And there are certain elements of it that just are for increasing engagement. They're to be used a lot and used smoothly. And so we've created an amazing Android app that transforms your phone into a more intentional and less distracting experience. And right now we do that in three ways. We take over the home screen, we let you batch notifications, and we have created a different menu system. Um, our beta is going to be live in, in a moment, so you can see cool. a bit more of it online. Yeah, I'll definitely post that um, on the blog link. Um, Thanks. So it seems that there's been this long history, if you've ever read Yuval Harari's Sapiens book. Part of it, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's essentially human history seems to have evolved codependently with technology. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the last... 10 to 20 years, that pace of that has rapidly changed. So we, you know, 2006, Facebook happened. Mm -hmm. Everybody was very pro startups. There was very few voices in the cultural kind of uh, milieu that said like, uh, this needs to be checked. We need to slow this down. We don't know what the, the, the problems that might arise from this are. Uh, and then fast forward to 2011, 2012, uh, some voices started to come out that were that were that were questioning our, our role in technology. And now in, we're yeah. in 2017. There's a there, you know uh, tech clash. Yeah, tech, tech clash. I don't. Know, did you just make that up? Or? No, I saw it for the first time a week ago. Okay, all right. <laughs> uh, and yeah, we've got you know we've got Russian interference with elections through Facebook, and there's starting to become a kind of cultural reaction to technology itself. So it seems that culture is adapting to technology. Um, and then now we seem to have people like you and people, other people doing mm -hmm. other things that are starting to adapt technology to then help the problems that technology mm -hmm. created. And so it's, it's this feedback loop. What do you think about this? Where does this go in the next five to 10 years? Yeah, I think nature always responds to what's going on. Mm -hmm. And as you point out, technology has always solved the problems that technology has created before. So there will be tools like Siempo and others that can create more distance between um, you know, digital distraction and help people build stronger digital habits. There will be tools that help the kids who are growing up inseparable from technology develop more emotional intelligence mm -hmm. skills and feelings of psychological safety mm -hmm. and deeper human connection. We don't have too many of those now, but I'm starting to see a lot of entrepreneurs thinking about that. How can we move people up Maslow's hierarchy of needs mm -hmm. to self-actualization and self-transcendence using AI, VR, AR? And yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's really tricky. The Center for Humane Tech, Tristan Harris, they are attacking it from a few different angles. Um, pressure on big companies, pressure on government, you know, huge education of consumers. And I think all are important. I think they're all really strong points of leverage. And 
I think that as more and more people become aware of how important it is to have this meta skill of being able to balance the power of technology with how it can enrich their lives, mm. then that culture can become contagious. Mm. What's fascinating is I've been polling friends around the world about how people see this problem in, in different countries. Mm. And so mm. in China, even though WeChat mm. is everything and people are just living in their phones, it's people aren't making such a fuss about it as they are here. Mm. That could be because of Russia, that could be because of um, you know, just Silicon Valley, mm. maybe we live in a bubble, inside mm. a bubble. <laughs> uh, but it seems like in other parts of the world, there's, mm. there's a little bit of awareness, but it's not, it's not a crisis mm. that, the, that the news cycle is, is playing uh, up here. Interesting. Yeah, and I'm not really sure what that is. Maybe it's fewer people who have been on smartphones as long. Yeah. Maybe it's, I mean, I'd love to dig in more. Uh, like, what are the cultural reasons for that? Uh-huh. You know, in, in some of those countries, people do live closer together, so they have the human connection uh-huh. that we mm-hmm. don't have here, and we're replacing with these tools. And that's something that I found really interesting. I spent a lot of time in Latin American countries, and Latin American countries are some of the biggest users of social networks, but at the same time, those social networks enhance the family connections mm-hmm. that already exist, and they already have strong cultural frameworks for essentially being deeply in connection with family. Right. Uh, whereas in the U.S., Western Europe maybe, uh, uh, we've kind of went through this cultural change that dropped a lot of our, our family connections, and then we have uh, these social networks that come in and then we have these superficial relationships that maybe are already superficial, and then this social network just kind of enhances that that trend that already happens. Right. Thanks. Really Amplifies more of what we already are. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's super important. The uh, the close family ties and everything. I, I actually I have no illusions that a software silver bullet uh. could solve all the problems. Uh. You know, can it fight loneliness? Can it fight depression? Uh, maybe maybe in combination, but I think there is this real world in real life human to human component uh-huh. that you know we're thinking about constantly, uh-huh. and that's a huge opportunity for other people to work on too. Uh-huh. I I don't know that Facebook, Apple, Google are going to be the ones to really facilitate that, uh-huh. but human connection is the cure for addiction uh-huh. above all. Uh-huh. So really fascinated by that. And for your own practice, what are what is some software that's helped you kind of get a handle on your own use of technology? Is there any software that's helped so far? A lot of the tools I've tried, and it's been maybe 50, <laughs> they're, they're, they're helpful. Huh. For example, I have a, I have that Facebook hide your newsfeed extension. I have a Chrome extension that rings a bell every 15 minutes that reminds you to breathe. I've used Moment when I had an iPhone to track my usage. These are all helpful. Uh-huh. I think it's more of the manual techniques, mm. the the self-discipline okay. to leave my phone in my bag when I'm walking down the street. Mm. You know, it, it, it's, it's become, and I'm biased, but it's become extremely unattractive to see somebody walking down the street with a phone in their hand. It, it's like, it's just sending a huge message. Like, not only am I more concerned about what's happening on here than the rest of the world, but I... I'm willing to, you know, jeopardize my safety. <laughs> uh, like when you see someone walking across the street, like uh, literally in the crosswalk, <laughs> looking at their phone, and it's it's not really their fault. Like we're we're hardwired for this. It's a tool in our hands that might be useful for us. That's more important than the car in our peripherals. So, creating distance. I have this mantra: out of sight, off of body, out of mind. Because there's research that says if you see the phone on a table, or if it's on your body, you're going to use it more. So if it's out of arms and eye shot, then you're probably not going to use it as much. Mm-hmm. But it's there if you need it. Mm-hmm. And 
Yeah, desktop. Honestly, my I feel good about my smartphone usage um, because of the journey I've been on and because of Sampo. It's my desktop that's more of a problem these days. So that's something I'm thinking a little bit about. I'm so good at um, tab switching, keyboard shortcuts. So if a page is taking too long to load, I've checked Facebook, Twitter, Gmail, Gmail. <laughs> In the, in the time that it's taken for the page to load. Yeah. Do you, do you find yourself forgetting to go back to that page, or do you, do you have a pretty strong focus on your task event? I, I think I have a, an above average ability to task switch. Mm. I don't proclaim to be able to multitask. I think I'm really good at holding a lot of things in the air. And this could be a gift that came from those experiences in my teenage years of keeping track of lots of relationships. Mm. So I am not very methodical. I don't make, you know, whole uh, project management systems. Mm. I, I sort of have a to-do list, mm. but I'm, I think I'm good at connecting a lot of things and knowing when the right time to do a certain thing is. Mm. I almost never, ever forget anything. Mm. So I, and, and that makes this all more natural. I mm. feel like I, I flow through life and I'm able to do the important things mm. and, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't think that's a hindrance. I think the, the hindrance is more those those entrances of new new information. Like checking Facebook is this intrinsic motivation for something. Like there might be something new. And I don't feel really good about how I've been manipulated by that company to, to enact that behavior. I don't think it's really healthy for me. Sometimes there are important bits of information but I would, I would like to set up better systems mm. for having that information come to me. So as an example, I've started just going to messenger.com because then you don't see notifications, you just see the messages. Yeah. And that's just sort of like having iChat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've downloaded a separate messenger app mm. that allows me to do the communication without the, the newsfeed. Nice. Um, so from what I'm hearing, it sounds like, so we have Technology, technology's changed our ability to focus and to develop relationships, and it's changing the way we interact. Uh, but then what you're saying is that most of the ways that we're going to kind of reclaim our humanity are actually going to come from techniques that are um, uh, in uh, that are based on our uh, mental, physical, emotional kind of uh, techniques or, so, or something like that. Uh, um, what do you think about that? Like, yeah, in a way, it's retraining people to be human mm. or to become more complete humans. Uh -huh. And we spend, I don't know, five hours on day on average. Teenagers spend eight hours hours a day on average. You know, a third to a half of our waking lives uh -huh. in in front of technology. So there's a lot of experiences that we're missing out on that could register in knowings in our body uh -huh. or that could nourish us in different ways, like. The uh, at Wisdom 2.0, the founder of Daybreaker, had a really striking statistic that in the U.S. and the U.K., we touch each other uh, on average two times per conversation mm. when we meet and when we depart. Mm. In Mexico, it's 153 times per conversation. Whoa. Yeah. And, you know, we, we evolved as, you know, pack animals. Um, a teacher of mine has used the example of lions. A pride of lions will basically hang out in a big cuddle puddle for days yeah. <laughs> uh, developing these energetic attachments yeah. so that when they're out on the hunt, they actually have a sense of where everyone is all the time. Become one organism, essentially. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so, Whoa. you know, 
I'm not saying that we should all hop in cuddle puddles every day, but things like dance, things like uh, getting out into nature that can connect us with more life. Yeah. And, and yeah, these emotional intelligence training programs, mindfulness, these things that can help reverse some of the social programming that we've always been getting from family and school and, you know, media. And now we're getting like hyper personalized, hyper targeted by the biggest supercomputers the moment we wake up yeah. <laughs> and for five hours a day. Mm. So there's a lot to undo and then relearn. And, and I think that's really exciting. I think we've never had 4 billion magical tools in people's hands around the world that right now are programmed for certain objectives, but what if they're, they could be programmed for your objectives? Yeah. What would that look like? And how could that wake people up from the hypnosis of technology, from, from privilege, from other things that are preventing them from realizing their true potential, finding their purpose? Mm. Mm. So it sounds like the way that we can kind of uh, support people's growth is through educational uh, opportunities like teaching mindfulness, teaching uh, things like that, or kind of spreading this awareness that the, the, the solution to the problem is actually inside of you and that you have, you have the solution to the problem as mm. opposed to uh, here's another thing to, to, to do on the, on the technology. Um, I think it could be, it could be a combination. Yeah. Mm. There's a really inspiring program at the University of Vermont. They basically create a wellness dorm where the students who live there, and I think there are a few dozen, they sign a contract where they won't drink or consume drugs. And in return, they get free meditation, free yoga. They get lectures on the neuroscience of XYZ and on relationships. And I think they get an Apple Watch too, something crazy. Yeah. And it's, I mean, understanding how you work is really important. Understanding how to use these tools, whether it's an app or it's meditation, to, to help you is important. And also that community aspect is super important too, because the, the student uh, going at it alone is rare mm. and is, is not as supported as they could be. Mm. That's a really good point. And I think that's such a tremendous opportunity. Yeah. You know, college campuses, a freshman leaving the home for the part, yeah, an incoming freshman leaving their family for the first time and going into this super stressful environment, student loans, pressure of expectation, social pressures, um, you know, Greek life, it's, it's insane. And it, it pushes people to a breaking point. Mm -hmm. And particularly and, with the, the uh, evolution of uh, the last 30, 40 years of like college drinking too, and like, oh my the God. importance of drinking for the social environment. Yeah, yeah. It's, it can be incredibly toxic, you know, for both men and women. Yeah. And I'm, I'm impressed and inspired to see lots of campuses taking initiative to, to help kids before they need it. Yeah to give people an alternative path. And I'm just, I'm just pumped. I, I, I go to Wisdom 2.0 and I'm still pretty much the youngest person there. Yeah. I'm like, where are all these kids? Like, where are the undergrad business school kids yeah. who could go out into the world and produce such gifts for humanity, uh -huh. but they're still getting scooped up by banks and big tech and consulting. Yeah. And that's, that's mm -hmm. fine because they might eventually come to, uh, you know, more of a, a heart centered purpose driven place. And if you think about, you know, the whole like, light vessel spectrum, I think it's easier to take someone on the vessel side who like has the business experience, you know, take them on a Vipassana and then they're able to create in the world versus someone who has started on a different path. It's hard to convince that person to learn the skills and go through that journey to then put the magic into the world. It's not impossible, but I think the people who are kind of in the middle 
or who started on the vessel side are really prime because you know, in a lot of ways, and there's no judgments here, it's just like because of you know conditions, mm. a lot of people go into these careers that aren't very nourishing and mm. don't really have that aligned purpose. And so that prevents how they're able to show up in the rest of their life. Mm. And that brings something else up that we were talking about earlier about this evolution of technology. Younger people have an easier time adapting to, to what's happening to because of technology, and mm -hmm. older people have less ability to adapt. So mm -hmm. I think one of the fundamental issues of our time right now is we're, the, we're going about to lose a lot of jobs that have existed for the last 50 years, and those jobs are primar primarily unskilled jobs. Uh, and so you have a lot of people who have built a life, built up a lot of habits, it's much harder to change at 40, much harder to go on Vipassana at 40 years old yeah. than it is at 20 years old. Uh, and so these people are now turning to opioids and other things that are essentially trying to fill that hole that mm -hmm. the job used to provide. And so, yeah, I think you're bringing up some good points about younger people are, are probably going to be the easier people to help them adapt to the negative effect of technology. Mm -hmm. But it's important that we help everybody. And I think there's a huge opportunity mm -hmm. for wellness products and services yeah. to become more accessible to the vulnerable segments of the population, whether it's formerly incarcerated or, you know, lost a job because, you know, plant moved away or just someone in the cycle of intergenerational mm -hmm. poverty where it's, it's mm -hmm. hard to find that self-determination. And even if there is a workshop on mindful tech use where, you know, there's going to be food and stuff, it's just massless hierarchy of needs. Mm -hmm. Like you have other things to worry about. And it, it's those kids who I'm deeply concerned about because, like the studies show, that a single parent in a lower income household, the kid is going to be on their phone most of their waking life. Mm -hmm. And that's partially because they don't have a computer, so they do their homework on their phone, mm -hmm. but it's also because they don't have the financial means to do anything else. Mm -hmm. Whereas a more educated parent in you know, Silicon Valley, they will take the time and effort to take their kids to the national park and to the library. And, Mm. all these sports and things like that so yeah how could we you know how can we reach those people um yeah big mm. questions mm -hmm. no answers <laughs> and so let's i'd like to uh move it back to your your practice what um what is the most effective technique that you have to bringing yourself in, back into the moment and back into being present probably putting these triggers around my life, both digitally, like that Chrome extension bell, or for example, the Sampo home screen lets you personalize the message that you see every time you open your phone. Mm -hmm. So right now mine says, from the heart, with a few hearts. Uh -huh. And that's not only on the home screen, but it's also on the top page of my distracting apps. So we're able to service it in different parts of the UI. And then in person, I have some you know, mindful messages throughout my house and you know, wearing jewelry or I have this watch that just says now. It doesn't tell the time. <laughs> it's actually, yeah, it's great. People people love it. It's not really for me. It's for them. Uh, <laughs> I've learned that it doesn't tell the time. It's now. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes you know, I'll be biking, arriving at the office, and I'll just joke to myself, like, we're on time. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, so some of those triggers. Also, just scheduling things. Throughout my throughout my week, you know whether it's the, the weekly meditation circle or the morning and evening routines, I I'm going to be more nomadic the next couple months, and I'm now thinking about this a lot because in my past experiences when traveling, 
that's sometimes when I get the most stressed and tired. I'm on my phone the most, you know, in the lift, online for the airport. So to combat that, I'm scheduling rest time. I'm stocking up on healthy food. I'm downloading lots of offline meditations, guided meditations on the Insight Timer that I can pop in whenever I'm online. And, you know, I'm open to ideas on, on how else to make that experience smooth. Yeah, how how has your meditation practice evolved over the last? Or since you said you started a daily meditation about a year ago, mm-hmm. how has that evolved? My first retreat was a nature meditation retreat with Mark Coleman, mm-hmm. and for me, that really made things click. That the idea of meditation is focusing your awareness on an object, and that object could be your breath, it could be your thoughts, it could be your body. It could also be things in your surroundings. So we experimented with sound, which is really powerful. Mm-hmm. And we also experimented with um, like surface sensations. So the wind, the sun on your body. And then also with, with eyes open, you know, looking at large expanses with, with touch, going around and touching plants and things like that. And so I've, I've made intention to improve my meditation guiding skills because I find myself in nice places with people who are not too familiar with meditation mm-hmm. and I always default to walking them through a quick five minute nature meditation mm-hmm. and I, I like that mm-hmm. um, in in the last couple of years I, I did a, a short uh, insight retreat and that that was kind of a medley of you know breath thoughts other I think that's you bring up a really interesting point we might have uh, time with it for it but essentially the, the practice of meditation was developed or discovered maybe at a time when people were in the country some in the urban urban centers and stuff like that and, and a lot of yogic techniques were developed for householders but we now seem to be moving into a period of human evolution where most people are moving into the cities into urban environments mm. noisy environments uh chaos um and technology is then bringing people lots of opportunities for distraction and stuff like that so it seems that mindfulness or meditation or the way that we use needs to also evolve uh, which i guess mm. we've been talking about already um and so that oftentimes i find myself looking back in history for for insight into what happens now yeah. uh but I'm, I'm starting to realize that although that's helpful uh those they were having different issues back then and mm-hmm. so we might need to develop like what you're saying with luminous that they're combining what was from the past with what has been what has evolved since the enlightenment yeah uh, um, in, in the west yeah we've learned a lot about the human psyche and uh-huh. 